So we're on today the doctrine of the atonement. And last week, we um, last week we talked about the cause of the atonement, not just the love of God, although that's true, <clears throat> um, but uh, God. It, it, it couldn't be that God would just love us and say, oh, your sins are all forgiven and no penalty be paid. So the cause of the atonement was the love of God and the justice of God because sin had to be punished in some way. And Christ dying for our sin is therefore uh, the result of the love and justice of God. Does there, anybody need an out, outline? Everybody have one? Okay, Clyde and Garth, thank you for doing that. Um, and we did application to our lives that we too are to reflect God's character and exhibit both love and uh, justice in our lives. We talked about that a little bit. Then the necessity of the atonement, God didn't have to save anybody, so it wasn't absolutely necessary. Um, but <clears throat> um, if God was going to save any sinners, then the atonement was absolutely necessary. Uh, and there, I think there wasn't any other way for our salvation to be earned. And then the nature of the atonement, we talked about this, that it was not just Jesus dying on the cross, but he lived a life of perfect obedience to God through his whole 30, 33, 34, 35 years, however old he was. It's a little uncertain when he died, about 30 years when he started his ministry, Luke said. Uh, but his whole life was a life of representative obedience so that that record could be given to us. And then uh, also there was suffering, what is sometimes called his passive obedience. That is, he was the recipient of the sufferings that come through living in a fallen world. Uh, through his whole life, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Uh, but that suffering culminated in the cross. And then, oh yes, uh, the application to our lives is that God uh, calls us to some kinds of suffering in this life, in imitation of Christ's life. Not to bear the punishment for our sins, but that God would be glorified in us in the midst of our suffering. And Don, I don't know where you are, raised a question yeah, last week about what I said there, and I had to go back and look at it. Um, uh, when I say, if we do suffer in this life, it's not to bear the punishment for our sins. Well, okay, uh, if, for instance, if a person abuses alcohol for many years, there are consequences. There's a medical deterioration that, goes, that, that affects uh, his uh, body. <clears throat> and so there are consequences, but I don't think that's God punishing uh, for the person's sins. If, if the person is a, is a believer, uh, that punishment has already been taken by Christ. So it's just the way things work out in the fallen world. So I distinguish between consequences that come from sin or uh, actual punishment from God. Chuck Colson committed some crimes and went to prison, even though he was forgiven as a Christian. He had to pay the civil penalty of being in prison. Um, so uh, I don't know, Don, if that helps. Go ahead. Good uh, question. Was God punishing Adam and Eve when he sent him out of the garden after they sinned? Yeah, I think that was a partial pouring out of punishment. Um, hmm. I do think that there was a point where Adam and Eve came to saving faith. It's just hinted at. It's not really explicit. But the fact that God made garments from uh, skins of animals kind of symbolized that a life had to be given. And, um, and uh, certainly Abel, their son, learned somehow how to offer acceptable sacrifice to God with faith. 
Um, before a person is a Christian or before a person has forgiveness of sins, then some of the things that happen in this life can be punishment for their sin. But I don't think I want to say that for a Christian. I don't know if that helps. I think it's good because I don't want us to think that God's going to just keep punishing and punishing and punishing us as Christians. He'll discipline us for our good, and there are consequences for sin. But I don't think we should feel that God is kind of has wrath poured out or anger against us to harm us, uh, which punishment does. I don't know if that's... That's, that's a, it's a good question, and I maybe haven't gotten to the bottom of it. But. Oh, thanks. Okay. That was from last week. Um, and then, um, just as Jesus suffered, so we, we imitate him, and I just mentioned, I don't think there's anybody in this life who is free from some kinds of hardship and suffering, whether it's physical illness or financial or relational or um, other kinds of things that happen in this life. And, of course, in other countries, there's also much hostility and persecution against Christians, uh, which we, uh, at least from the government, don't, don't face that kind of, we're not thrown in jail here for being Christians or things like that. Um, and then Christ's sufferings culminated in the pain of the cross. Uh, and I mentioned four things, and this is where we came to an end last time. There was the physical pain and death involved in uh, crucifixion, and we talked about that last week in some detail. There was the pain of bearing sin, which uh, Jesus, as perfectly holy, uh, instinctively um, uh, rebelled against and didn't want, but took on himself for our sake. And there was this Old Testament background of putting the sin on the goat, and then Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or he made him, God made Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. Then there was the pain of abandonment. Both his disciples uh, forsook him and fled, all of his disciples forsook him and fled, and also uh, God the Father turned away his face from him. And uh, uh, abandonment by the Father as well, in some sense, that we probably don't fully understand. And then the fourth, and I think the most difficult aspect of the atonement, was bearing the wrath of God. And we talked about this word propitiation, which means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor, that makes God propitious or favorable. Uh, toward a person. And that word was used in, in, in pagan Greek religions about a sacrifice that would propitiate a god or make the god favorable in Greek uh, you know, mythology or uh, thinking about Greek gods. So it was a familiar term, the Greek term, and this is the word term the New Testament uses, a hilasterion, a propitiation, that is a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God. In Romans 3.25, Jesus is uh, a propitiation. Uh, Hebrews 2.17, he he's to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And um, there were other verses in 1 John. And then at the end of the time of Jesus' suffering on the cross, his suffering was coming to an end, and he could sense that. And the wrath of God was satisfied, and he said, it is finished. And then he laid down his life and died. Um, and said, into your hands I commit my spirit. So, uh, and this was, this was, I think it was at this point that we ended last week, and Isaiah 53, 11 talks, talks about this. Um, 
uh, talking about um, he shall bear their iniquities, he poured out his soul to death. So that's, that's where we were. Now, I want to go on and kind of fill that in more and talk a little bit more about the death of Christ and what happened. Um, first, um, the penalty was inflicted by God the Father. I mean, we might just think of Jesus dying as he was crucified by these Roman soldiers and they were put up to it by his uh, Jewish opponents who didn't believe in him. Many of his disciples also, of course, all his disciples were Jewish and they did believe in him, but some of the Jews did not. And, and so we might think on a human level that the, that the punishment came about because of these human factors, these human people who were opposed to Jesus, the Jewish leaders and the, some of the Jewish people and the Romans. But ultimately, it was, uh, the, um, it was the work of God the Father who inflicted the penalty on his own son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That is, he, God the Father, made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin. I have spent some time looking at that verse and studying it, and I don't know, and reading a lot of commentaries on it, and I'm not sure that anybody fully understands what that means. I think it, I think it means that, that the Father thought of Christ as being... Um, didn't think of him as actually having sinned, but as if he were a sinful person. Made him to be sin, made him to um, uh, bear the sin, have the penalty or the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the guilt of sin, the liability to punishment on him. And so that was God the Father who did that. And again, Isaiah 53, 6 is very explicit. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It wasn't just human punishment. It was God the Father putting that on him. And uh, Isaiah 53, 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Um. And then I ask, by way of application, because I said last week I'm going to try to put more application in uh, more frequently here in the lessons. Um, will we ever be able to understand what this was like for the Father to direct his overwhelming wrath against the Son whom he loved and who had done no wrong? See, I, I just I think human analogies fail us. We, we can get some, some small sense if you've raised children, and, and you, you sometimes, maybe you can remember where one child has done something uh, that's really wrong, and, and your anger or even wrath is aroused. You say, you know, that was wrong. Maybe one child was really mean to another child or, or lied or just was disrespectful to, the, to his mom or her mom or something, and, and you discipline um, and uh, there is some anger against the wrong, even though you love the child. But in those cases, you think it's right. No, it's, it's deserved, and, and uh, it's part of our role as a parent. But, but what about for a child who hasn't done anything wrong, and then not just a little bit of anger at, uh, that would maybe be involved in, in discipline, but... Um, but, but the full force of all your wrath to be poured out on a child who had done nothing wrong. See, that, that is really hard to comprehend. And yet, here's the picture that the Bible gives us, 
that the wrath of the Father that was due to sin, that contradicted his nature and, and aroused his righteous, burning anger, that that was poured out on his perfect son who had done, done no wrong. How could that be? It's mystery uh, beyond what we can understand. I uh, just just to think about it is uh, it's troubling in a way and it's it's awe inspiring in a way, isn't it? To think of, of that's what I deserve, and there is Jesus taking it in my place that that wrath of the Father, and hour after hour it goes on. Point B, by way of application, is that Jesus' life was therefore one of suffering and sacrifice for the good of others. And the question is, are we willing to follow in his steps? And First Peter, I had that verse earlier in, in uh, First Peter um, that said, uh, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And I started to think, well, how do we suffer? Well, the question is, do we want to live a life pleasing to God, a life that knows God's blessing? Because that is what Jesus knew. That is, even though he chose the path of hardship and suffering and obedience, it was a path of blessing, wasn't it? And, and he rejoiced in the Father, and, and for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, <clears throat> but also he delighted to do the will of the Father, even though it was difficult in this life. So simultaneously, there is hardship or suffering that comes from without, but on the other hand, there's the favor and the good pleasure of the Father. And Jesus could say, I always do what is pleasing to him. So he knew God's favor and blessing on his life for his whole life. And then I thought about this. In Arizona, or in the United States in general, we are able to avoid several kinds of suffering that affect Christians in other parts of the world. Um, uh, the government doesn't take, haul us off to jail and put us to death for being Christians, as happens in China, as happens in uh, a number of Muslim countries in, in Africa and Asia. Um, uh, we don't uh, have our children taken from us. We don't have um, refuse, uh, jobs being refused to us. Uh, because of being uh, just, you can't get any job at all because you're a Christian in some countries that kind of thing, but, um, um, and, and, and I suppose also in terms of health care in some countries or societies, uh, they don't have nearly the health care we have, which is able to alleviate some of our suffering. I can take allergy medicine so I can breathe, uh, and there are countries where that doesn't happen, and there are a lot of ways in which, and, and uh, there's always food in the grocery store and we go to buy it. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's, it's easy to live in the United States, isn't it? It's easy to live in Arizona. Um, but God often calls us, nonetheless, to a life of sacrifice for the good of others. And so I, I think that Jesus' willingness to suffer for us should cause us in our hearts to say, yes, Lord, I want to follow in your steps. And even if there are things that you call me to do that are hard and that are inconvenient or that are difficult, if I can do this for the sake of your church or if I can do this for the sake of for the good of others, then I'm going to do it and believe that there will be your blessing and your favor. Um, and uh, well, Keith was just talking about some missionaries who do that, uh, but also 
here in this church. There are people who work with youth groups. Uh, there are moms and dads who uh, uh, have uh, who are devoting a lot of their care to sometimes difficulties with children or other relatives. Uh, there are husbands or wives who sacrifice for the sake of the other, and there are many others in other ministries here in the church who are following in Christ's steps. And though it's a path of obedience that's difficult, it's also a path of blessing. And so I, I just I wanted to say that Jesus' example encourages us in that. Do you, you want to give me some feedback on that at all? Am I, am I making sense here? Um, Help me figure out what I'm trying to what I'm trying to get <laughs> what am I trying to get at here? So, I, I, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. What's your name? Okay. Hi. Keta. Okay. Geta. Um, I was just gonna say that working with the missionaries that I do um, and learning from. The, the studies that we've done here at our church, even in the in the services, I think that depending on how we step out in our faith and our communities, uh, that's the long suffering that Christ is experiencing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can actually experience that more so even within our families. Some of us who have become Christians and our family members are still not. Mm-hmm. Um, there's different opportunities for us to express ourselves okay. that way. Good. Thanks. Good. Anything else? Um, uh, Don over here. In those particular positions, uh, are there some people may be there for selfish reasons, but I think truly down in a Christian's heart, when they're doing any of God's work, it's a joy. It's yeah. it's it's uh, yeah. uh, it, 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 it is the pleasure of life. Yeah. And it's there's I, joy I think, in serving, isn't there? Yeah, and. Mm-hmm. I, I feel for those who don't have that mm-hmm. that joy, that no. pleasure okay. of serving, Good. that are maybe serving for yeah. who knows how many no. other reasons. Good. Okay. Well, in Scottsdale Bible Church, just has an incredible number of people who serve. Who, who and I'm looking around the room and I'm seeing many of you, and I can I can tell how you know there are many of you who are doing this, but. I'm, and I'm thankful for that, and just to reassure you and reaffirm that and saying, God didn't call us just to make our lives as easy and pleasant as possible, uh, sort of in the worldly material sense. He called us to a life of service, to be useful for others and useful for the work of the kingdom and so that we bring glory to him. And that's where there is true joy and fulfillment. And Jesus' pattern is an example for us. Yeah, Keith. Yeah, thanks, Wayne. And I'm just I'm trying to connect what you're saying today to what Tim Kimmel talked about last week about grace-based parenting, Mm -hmm. and and I was particularly resonating this week on that issue of building into ourselves a heart of servanthood. Mm -hmm. And and perhaps one of the things you're talking about here is there's a lot of measures or barometers in our life on our personal sanctification journey, and and certainly one dimension of that is this year is Keith less selfish and more selfless mm-hmm. than I was a year ago. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of this is speaking into that space. Yeah, okay. That's really helpful, Keith. Thank you. It's a good, man, it's a good question, hard question to ask ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm looking at Keith. A lot of you, through your jobs, 
do a lot of ministry to others as well. So, um, as a physician. Okay, well, that was just application. Now, there's another question that kind of I wondered about from time to time. If, if we don't have our sins forgiven, then we face eternal punishment. Well, if Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, why didn't he face eternal punishment? Did you ever wonder about that? How did, how did that work out? How could he just suffer for, well, his lifetime, but particularly that time on the cross, and then how was that enough? Well, I think we have to say that Jesus did not suffer eternally, but he made a complete payment for our sins. And there's a difference because we would have to suffer eternally if we paid for our own sins because we could never make our sinful nature righteous. And we'd just go on having a sinful heart and we'd still be angry at God and not caring for him and not trusting him. And no matter how long we were punished, if our hearts weren't changed, we'd just go on sinning and the sins would never be paid for. But Christ had a sinful nature. In fact, the fact that unbelievers go on suffering forever means that the payment is never complete, doesn't it? See, if, some, if somebody has suffered eternally, it implies that it's never complete. But Jesus, when his suffering came to an end, that proved that his suffering was complete, that he bore the wrath of God to the end. In fact, Christ alone was able to bear the full measure of God's wrath to the end. Uh, there's this hymn, uh, there is a green hill far away outside a city wall where our, two, uh, where our dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. Oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too, and trust in his redeeming love, and try his works to do. And then there's another verse. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And there's just the heart of the gospel is there. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. And so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And that means that he sensed that the wrath of God that had been poured out to him, on him finally had come to an end. And it was, it was exhausted, the wrath that was due to us. And his suffering was finished. And so there's no condemnation for us, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, and Hebrews 9.25 says the same thing. It wasn't to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places yearly with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus was offered once to bear the sins of many, and then he will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him in Hebrews 9. So his, his work of atonement on the cross came to an end. It was finished. It was sufficient. Now, I have to say here, at this point, we differ with our Roman Catholic friends because they have a different doctrine of the atonement. And it has to do with what Roman Catholics believe about the sacrifice of the Mass. I'm going to quote two things here. First, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which came out in 1994 and is uh, approved by the Pope as teaching the official doctrine of the Catholic Church. And here it says, uh, in paragraphs 1364 to 67, as often as the sacrifice of the cross is celebrated on the altar, that means in the Catholic Church at a Mass, the work of our redemption is carried out. So it's, it's picturing it as ongoing. The Eucharist, that's their word for the Lord's Supper, or what we call communion. 
the Eucharist, the bread and wine, the Eucharist is also a sacrifice. In the Eucharist, Christ gives us the very body which he gave up for us on the cross, the very blood which he poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. So it's ongoing, and there's a, a Catholic teaching that at the, at the Mass, when the priest says, this is my body or this is my blood, the sacrifice of Christ continues to be acted out, or not just symbolically, but actually acted out or performed during the Mass. Ludwig Ott, an earlier book, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, a widely used theology book, in every Mass, Christ also performs an actual, immediate, sacrificial activity. So that's a very different view. And it seems to me that for Roman Catholics then, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a failure to appreciate that Christ's sacrifice is complete. It's done. It doesn't go on as long as the Mass is being celebrated. We think of communion as just a symbol, a reenactment that makes us look back at what Christ has done, but his sacrifice does not continue on. So that, uh, that's, that's just, do you want to talk about that at all? Um, interact with that. Yeah. Um, Anne? Okay, Anne says, where does that come from? Uh, where, did, where did they get that? Anne, I'm going to take a guess from maybe I'm remembering something and maybe I'm just reading that I... But my first answer is I don't know for sure. That's my main answer. Okay. My second answer is I think it may come from the idea that this is really Christ's body and really Christ's blood, so something must be happening. But I'm not sure. Okay, uh, as opposed to just being symbolic. Um, but for me, there is great peace that comes from realizing that the atonement is finished, that Christ's work is done, that the penalty is all paid. Um, that gives me great relief, and there's no, no punishment left that I have to bear. Another thing that I think, and I'm just kind of adding little extra understanding, uh, extra facts of understanding here about the atonement. The atonement was primarily something that happened between Christ and God. And so it has an objective reality. I'm going to emphasize this because there are people denying it today. I'll explain that in just a minute. The atonement has an objective reality. is something that happened out there. That is, not in just in my heart, but out there, that is, between Christ and God, there was something that happened 2,000 years ago, and that's the heart of the atonement. It's apart from us. It was for us. But, but, but the focus of what happened was apart from us, outside of us. The atonement is not, in the first place, something that just affects us. Well, I'm forgiven and things like that. That's true. But first, it happened in history. It was a decisive moment where... Um, God previously stored up all that wrath against sins from Adam and Eve and Abel and Abraham and Moses and David and all those people who had been forgiven. And then he poured it all out on Christ and also the wrath that was due to you and me and poured it out on Christ. So it's an objective event that happened in history. 
And I want to emphasize that. I'm going to, I'm going to read these two passages from Hebrews uh, because, as I say, there are people who deny that today. And usually when people go wrong on the doctrine of the atonement, they start denying the objective reality of what happened between God and Christ. But here it is. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not, that is, that not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. What in the world does that mean? What's, what's going on there? Through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. Well, what is the tent made with hands? The Old Testament tabernacle. Okay, where Moses had the people set up this elaborate tent with the, the two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies, and they had the, the table with bread on it and the seven-pronged candlestick, the menorah, and the altar, and the incense was burning, and then the curtain that separated out, and then the holy of holies, and in the holy of holies there was the ark of the covenant, covered on all sides with gold, and the cherubim with their wings, Overcovering it, and God was there over the ark in the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go once a year. That was a tent made with hands. No, the author of Hebrews says that was just a copy. That was just a copy of the real thing in heaven. But when Christ appeared, then through the as a high priest, see, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. So Christ appeared as a high priest. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So he's meaning in heaven. Where God, where, where God, not just where God temporarily dwelt among his people, but the permanent dwelling place of God in heaven. Then Christ entered once for all into the holy places. That means the holy place and the holy of holies, both into the holy places in heaven, the real one. Not by means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. It's something that happened. That's his death on the cross. He entered into the greater tent by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It happened. It's objective. It's real. And then, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ... You see, there's a contrast again with the Old Testament. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that's Old Testament. Then verse 14... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is objective reality. Christ, by means, by virtue of his own death, his blood is representing his death here, and, and the, he through the eternal spirit, there was the help of the Holy Spirit in making this offering, he offered himself as a sacrifice without blemish to God. Objective reality, something truly happened in history. Christ on earth dying and then presenting himself as a sacrifice before the Father in heaven. Thus it was necessary for the copies, that's Old Testament, the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, that is better than the animals that were sacrificed under Moses. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the high holy places every year with blood not his own. Then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. 
But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he actually entered before the throne of God in heaven to present his perfect work as accomplished. John. What would happen if I asked a Roman Catholic friend to explain verse 25? I don't know. Um, but I do know that a number of former Catholics, having come to the book of Hebrews, find that it just transforms their understanding of Christ's death, that it is all finished. It's completely done. Okay? It's completely done. And there's such freedom in that, that I'm forgiven now. There's no condemnation left for me. I stand before God and there's no guilt that he's going to give to me. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Sandy. With the, with the tabernacle, the priests never sat because the work was never completed. Ah, okay. And so the sitting down at the right hand of God symbolized yeah. what you're talking about, go, the completion go ahead, listen, of Read atonement. the verse again, Sandy. Would um, you, so yeah, it's Hebrews 10, 12, and it says, But this man, man capitalized, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Um, yeah. so. I do think that sitting down at God's right hand shows the favor of God and shows the completion of his work. So that verse also, it shows there's something objective that happened here. It's real. It happened in history, uh, in heaven. Good, good. Application. Christ's atonement was accomplished once for all. Trust him and be at peace. I, I mean, that just gives us a wonderful sense of peace that this is done. We don't have to struggle for paying for our own sins. Application number two, it's interesting that the book of Hebrews goes on to say that Christ remains there in the presence of God the Father as our great high priest, and he welcomes us to come before God as forgiven people. We may take that for granted, but if we had a glimpse of the burning holiness and justice of God, we would tremble to think we could come before him. But Christ says, don't fear. If you've trusted in me, I'm going to welcome you into the presence of God. And here's Hebrews 10:19, a remarkable passage. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, just think, if you're a Jewish person, and you couldn't even get near the holy place to say nothing of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. You had to stay way outside the tent. And then you read this. And you've trusted in Christ. And it says, we have confidence to enter the holy places. The holy place and the holy of holies. By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's gone before us and he welcomes us. He represents us to God. We have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And then this, again, with Old Testament imagery in the background, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, that's the Old Testament image of sprinkling for cleansing, and our bodies washed with pure water, an Old Testament image of ordaining as priests. But this let us draw near, and the, the, the Greek uh, verb here is in the present tense, and I think we can legitimately say that it means let us keep on drawing near. Let us continually draw near to God. Let us draw near to God again and again and again. And that word, that phrase, draw near, is repeated several times in the book of Hebrews, calling us, come into the presence of God. Come before him to worship. Come before him to present your needs. Come before him to pray. Come before him without fear. Come before him with boldness and confidence because Jesus is there welcoming you to come before the very creator of God, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful God, the all-holy and righteous God, you can come right into his presence. Amazing. Because Christ has gone before. All right? It just, doesn't it make your heart want to spend time in prayer? Want to spend time in worship? I, th I think it does. I stop and think about that. Let us draw near, draw near, draw near, draw near, says the book of Hebrews. Okay, next point, number four, in terms of further understanding of the atonement. What does this phrase mean, the blood of Christ? And I don't know if you grew up in Sunday school and you hear these songs about the blood of Christ or you hear these hymns. And what is going on there? Blood, and you cut your finger and it bleeds and you put a Band-Aid on it, you know something about what blood is. But what does blood mean? Well, in the Old Testament, shedding blood meant pouring out someone's life. It meant to... You, you have the, 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 the lamb or the, or, the other, or the goat or the cow that is, a heifer is going to be sacrificed, and, and they would uh, cut its throat and its blood would just pour out, and then the animal dies. The pouring out of blood means that a life has been given. And then the priest takes the blood, and he goes in and sprinkles it on the altar. It's a way of saying, God, here is the proof that a sacrifice has died. I'm giving you the blood poured out, and the life was gone. So therefore, the blood proves that a death has occurred. And so here, the blood of Christ, I think in the New Testament, mainly means it's the evidence of payment of Christ's life as a ransom for us. Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. They didn't sacrifice human beings in the Old Testament. They sacrificed animals. But now Jesus says, this is blood of the covenant, the new covenant, and my blood is poured out, not just the blood of animals. And, of course, the, the, the wine of the Lord's Supper was the cup, then was the symbol of that. And Romans 3.25, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That means by his death for us. But I was surprised to look through the New Testament and find that the blood of Christ also has other applications to the life of Christians. And so... Uh, here, um, the blood of Christ, uh, let me read some. I didn't print out all these verses. Um, but the blood of Christ uh, cleanses our consciences, Hebrews 9.14. That was one I just talked about. How much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So our conscience before we become believers may be distorted and defiled and hardened, and it's purified by the blood of Christ. So it's sensitive to God's will, but it also has a sense of being forgiven. 
another uh, verse on the blood of Christ. It gives us access to God in worship and prayer. Hebrews 10:19. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I think that means that that God sees the sacrifice of Jesus, His blood that was spilled on the cross. God sees that, and that that is evidence that Jesus has died, and so we come into God's presence as a result. Or it cleanses us from remaining sin. First John 1:7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So that's ongoing. There's a sense of Jesus' death and his blood poured out. Um, at least in a spiritual sense, God thinks of that as applied to us, and it keeps on purifying us. Or Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Revelation 12.10, it enables us to conquer the accuser. Hmm. Revelation 12. Um, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers. Who's that? Satan. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. How do we conquer Satan by the blood of the Lamb? I think when he attacks us, we believe and we can say, Jesus has cleansed me from sin. He's forgiven me of sin. Satan, you, have no, you can bring no accusation against me. It's all forgiven. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb. There's probably more to it than I understand, but at least that. And then it rescues us from a sinful pattern of life. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but, 1 Peter 1.19, with the blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Well, I think when we think about Jesus' death and his blood poured out, we, it would be good for us to, to, to remember that that means that our conscience has been cleansed. We don't have these accusations of guilt anymore. We've, we have triumph over the enemy. Our sins are forgiven, those kinds of things. Questions on that? Okay. Trent, I keep on thinking this, and I didn't mention it. Somehow I've got really bright lights in my eyes. Um, I don't know if that's changeable or not. Yeah, Carol. When I have been tempted by Satan or I, I see myself giving in to something that I know isn't right, I actually say out loud, mm. I claim Jesus Christ's blood, mm. who is my Savior and Lord, yeah. who died on the cross for my sins. Yeah. And it works. Good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and Satan hates that. Because a reminder to him that he's been defeated. Mm. He couldn't, couldn't triumph over Jesus through Jesus' death, because Jesus' death brought the forgiveness of our sins. Good. Carol, I, I chuckled when you say that, because there are people today who don't like talking about the blood of Jesus. Oh, what kind of religion is that? You know, talk about all this death and blood and everything. Well, it's at the heart of the whole Bible. Yeah. Good. Good. And, and the enemy doesn't like it. 
It reminds him that he's lost. Yeah. And so I like it. <laughs> okay, now, point five. And now I'm getting into an area that shouldn't be any controversy, but that is a controversy today. And I thought I would bring this up because it, it started out with one or two people starting to deny this, and then more people starting to deny it, and my prediction is there are going to be more yet starting to deny it. That is, I believe that what I'm presenting here and what is in the New Testament says that Christ's death was a death of penal substitution. In the law, we have the penal code or the law code with regard to penalty, and there's a penal system that has to do with penalizing uh, criminals and things. Penal has to do with punishment. Penal means that Jesus bore a penalty. And substitution means he died as a substitute for us. Sometimes this is also called vicarious atonement. A vicar stands in place of another. So Jesus substituted for us or he stood in our place and took God's punishment. Some prominent evangelicals have recently denied this doctrine, the idea of penal substitution or propitiation, that Jesus bore God's wrath. Joel Green and Mark Baker in the book, Recovering the Scandal of the Cross, unfortunately published by InterVarsity Press in 1990. Um, uh, what do they say? They have different ways of understanding Jesus' death. Um, oh, it's reconciliation in terms of personal relationship. It's sacrifice for worship. It's triumph over evil. It's redemption, but, but the one thing they don't want is to say that it's penal substitution. Now listen to this sentence. What is required is not a transformation within God's heart towards sinners, but a transformation of their sinful existence before God. Let me read that again. What is required is not a transformation within God's heart towards sinners, the transformation of their, the sinner's, sinful existence before God. That's denying what I call the objective character of the atonement. They're saying nothing had to happen with regard to God. It was just our hearts had to be changed. Joel Green is a professor of New Testament at Asbury Seminary. He was, until recently, the academic dean, that is basically number two person, who was in charge of all the academics at Asbury Seminary. Asbury Seminary is the, has been for years the only remaining Methodist seminary that really believed the Bible. But now Joel Green is teaching there and denying substitutionary atonement. In another passage that's, that's hard for me even to uh, read or to say, he says, well, many people think that the atonement where God punished Jesus for sins was divine child abuse. I hate even to say that, but uh, he's saying we shouldn't believe this anymore. And uh, I was on a Moody Radio uh, nationwide call-in show at one time. Actually, James McDonald and I were on together, and they were doing some question and answer, and I said, I'm really troubled that the academic dean at Asbury Seminary uh, Joel Green has published this book with InterVarsity Press denying penal substitution in the atonement or denying propitiation. 
And, uh, and James McDonald said, yes, I'm, I'm really troubled by that too, and other people are reading this and following it. And uh, so then I got a letter from Joel Green saying, I heard you were on Moody Radio and you said I deny penal substitution. I can't deny penal substitution because if I denied it, I couldn't be dean here. But I said, I wrote back and said, well, you said this and this and this in your book. And so that didn't resolve itself. But he does deny it, and there have been others in the Evangelical Theological Society reading papers about this book, and he hasn't changed what he said. So, um, so that troubled me. Then Judith Gundry Wolf taught at Fuller, taught New Testament at Fuller for several years. She's now been appointed as a professor at Yale. But in this, again, InterVarsity Press book uh, called Dictionary of Paul and His Letters, it's a standard, standard reference book. She says, The need of sinners can be said to be not the transformation of God's attitude toward them, but the transformation of their sinful existence before God. Again, do you hear what that sentence is saying? It's taking half of the truth and making it the whole truth. Yeah, our hearts need to be changed, yes. But first of all, God's wrath had to be satisfied and the penalty for sin. She said, oh no, we don't need that. Um, the idea of appeasing a wrathful God is in tension with Paul's understanding of Christ's death. And uh, she says it's not propitiation that we should use to understand Christ's death. And then Steve Chalk. Steve Chalk in the United Kingdom, uh, in England, is a w very well-known evangelist and, and uh, pastor, Baptist pastor. Um, very, very well known. He'd be of the status of, I don't know, a Swindoll or a Charles Stanley or something like that here in the United States. Steve Chalk came out with this book in 1994, The Lost Message of Jesus. And what does he say? He complains about the church's inability to shake off the great distortion of God contained in the theory of penal substitution with its inbuilt belief in retribution and the redemptive power of violence it has cost us dearly. It produces a twisted justification of violence and encourages selfish, individualistic abuses of power. So these people are objecting. They're saying this idea that Jesus bore the wrath of God is too violent. And it leads people to be violent. And it's divine child abuse. And it's too individualistic. It makes people focus too much on themselves and their own forgiveness. And my response is, well, does the Bible teach it? See, I can remember when I, and I was in college, and then I was in college in the 60s, and then in seminary in the early 70s. There were people denying propitiation. They were denying penal substitution. But they were all liberals. They weren't evangelicals. They were C.H. Dodd at Cambridge University, who didn't like the idea of wrath of God. Then I went to Cambridge for Ph.D. work in New Testament, and there was a New Testament seminar on the atonement. And, the, and every single professor there was saying, I just can't see this idea of the wrath of God against sin. And, of course, see what's behind that. That came out of the 1920s liberalism in the United States where everybody's saved. God loves everybody. And what they did was they took half a truth and made it into the whole truth. They took the truth of the love of God and said, God's love is so great, there can't be any wrath against anybody. Now, why would anybody want to believe that? Because what, what's the result of that? We don't have to, yeah, well, yeah. if there's no wrath of God against anybody because God's love overcomes it all, 
there's no hell or punishment. How? By magnifying the love of God, you get rid of the doctrine of hell. Huh. And you get rid of the idea that anybody's lost. Oh. And all of a sudden, everybody's saved. Well, you might find, you know, you might say, oh, I might like to believe that, but that's not what the Bible teaches. And so, yeah, that, that came out of liberalism, but now InterVarsity Press publishing it, and Zondervan, sadly. And these are evangelical publishers. It used to be you could trust everything that InterVarsity Press published. In college, when I was in college, that was the case. But sadly, they're, they're publishing things like this, denying penal substitution, which has been at the heart of the gospel. My answer to that is, the only question is, does the Bible teach it? Yes, it's got that word propitiation there. Yes, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. He, he bore our sins on the cross. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A rightly understood, the doctrine of penal substitution should never cause us to be violent or aggressive or abuse children. I mean, that's, that's a foolish, ridiculous, stupid misinterpretation of the Bible. Because the Bible commands us to imitate Christ in his love. We can't ever take it to ourselves to be God and exact, you know, pour out wrath on, on, on sinners. God has done that. It rightly understood the doctrine of penal substitution, Christ bearing the wrath of God, it should cause us to tremble at the horror of our sin that called forth such a response from God. Denial of penal substitution is a leftover product of 1920s liberalism that hated the idea of the wrath of God or the idea that some are not saved. But my response is penal substitution is at the heart of the gospel. And without it, there's no way to satisfy God's justice and enable us to be saved. When I was in England two months ago, I found out that this largest Bible conference in England, uh, I think it's the largest, called Spring Harvest. Every year, the British InterVarsity, which is more conservative than American InterVarsity, British InterVarsity, called Universities and Colleges Christian Fellowship, they would sponsor the Bible teaching at this Spring Harvest Conference. But Spring Harvest invited Steve Chalk this year to be a major teacher. And InterVarsity went right up to the board of InterVarsity. They said, okay, we're not going to participate anymore. And so InterVarsity withdrew from that 30,000-person Bible conference. I may not have the numbers exactly right, but it's huge. They withdrew because they said, we cannot share the platform with somebody who denies penal substitution. And I am glad for that. They took a stand. They said, this is a doctrine we're going to stand on, and we're not going to, we're not going to let the denial of it be something unimportant. Do you want to ask more about that or, or talk more about that? Yeah, Joyce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say it again, Joyce. That, doesn't that philosophy philosophy more or less than negate the necessity for yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Which See, is the whole point. I, they come up with all sorts of other theories of what the atonement meant. Why did Jesus have to die? Oh, it was an example of how we are to suffer, or it was just shows how bad sin is and all that. But if you take out the wrath of God, I really don't think you've got a good explanation for why Jesus had to die. I really don't think it is. Yeah. So I think that's right. You've got it at the heart of it. Anything else? What else? Yeah, over here, Wayne. Uh, I grew up 
and in the Methodist Church. And one Sunday, a known communist came to take the pulpit to ah. that church. Yeah. Now that's when Dad stood up and said, that's enough, yeah. and we left along with half of the church. Yeah. But what we have tend to learn, I think, that the Methodist seminary has been taken over and what they are teaching there seems to be a social gospel and mm -hmm. they're getting further and further away. I, 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 we call it communism, to be exact, but I don't know how strong that is. But mm. That's from what we learned, gosh, when I was 17 <laughs> yeah. or so. So okay. uh, it doesn't look too good for their seminary. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very troubling. Now, I've got to say, I mean, my friend Al Coppage, a godly, faithful man, still teaches theology there, and he's completely sound in his doctrine. And there are others there who are grieved over, over what has happened and what has been allowed. So it's not 100%. And there are Methodist churches that are Bible-believing churches, so it's not all. But the control of the seminaries and the control of the denominations is in the hands of liberals now, sadly. Yeah. One other. Yep. Um, I forgot your name. and I, Tina, yes. Um. As evangelical Christians and saving faith, don't we believe that um, Jesus Christ was the Son of God? We have faith in that, and we have faith that he died for our sins. So how do they define saving faith? Uh, they would trust in Jesus but not be quite sure why he saves them. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really simplifying, but I've known some people who deny propitiation. And they, they have to say, well, it was, it was something else than bearing the penalty for our sins. And then the other theory is just that it's kind of a mystery in the end. Well, okay, I tell you what, we, I was going to finish this outline today, but it looks like, let me, just, um, let me just say, don't be tempted. Here's the application. Don't be tempted to abandon some teaching of the Bible just because people in our modern culture don't like it or object to it or find it offensive. Um, and uh, and Joel Green went to a really liberal seminary, I think Perkins School of Theology, and so what did he learn there? And Judith, well, anyway, Joel Green went there. Um, and, and this doctrine should not be embarrassing to us. It should be something we rejoice in. In fact, when we think about Jesus bearing the wrath of God against sin, it should cause us to experience amazement that the eternal Son of God was the object of the wrath of the, of the eternal Father. Amazement and awe and deep, profound joy as we contemplate Jesus bearing the wrath of God that was due to our sin. You know the words of that old spiritual, oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I think that should be our response. Okay, well, let's see. We're going to have to come back two weeks from today and finish this up. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for this wonderful, wonderful teaching of your word and this wonderful fact that you did pay the penalty for our sins, that you did bear, you willingly bore the wrath of God that was due to us. Lord, though though the world doesn't understand, and in many cases just does not like this doctrine because it humbles us, Lord, and it tells us that we can do nothing to earn our salvation. Lord, we delight in it. We treasure it. We thank you for it. We are amazed at it. Keep this in our minds, Lord, your sacrifice for us and the great peace 
and freedom from condemnation that it gives us. Amen.